0: Welcome, everyone, once again to this Twitter space. I'm Dimitri Alperovitch, chairman of Silverado Policy Accelerator, a geopolitical think tank. And today, once again, I'm joined by two of the foremost experts on the Russian military. Michael Kaufman is a research program director in the Russian Studies program at the Center for Naval Analysis. And Rob Lee is a senior fellow at the Eurasia program of the Foreign Policy Research Institute. All right. Well, let's once again get an update on the current status of the war. So, Rob, why don't we begin with you? What's the latest on the Russian advance? What has changed in last week?
1: So over the last week, I'd say the, the, the situation in advance hasn't changed that much. Um, as we know, Russia had more success in the south. But in the, the southwest portion, um, the city of Mykolaiv is still being held by Ukrainian forces. They've clearly had some success. Um, posted a couple of videos on destroying or capturing a VDV uh, D30 um, artillery battalion. Um, and a number of other kind of vehicles have captured or ambushed in that area. Um, so far, we haven't seen a move towards Zaporizhia yet, although that's probably probably likely at some point. And then in Mariupol, um, Ukrainian forces there continue to hold out, even though they've been surrounded. Obviously, been quite a heavy bombardment. There was that bombardment of a, a maternity ward um, or hospital a few days ago. Um, the city, you know, is really being hit hit quite heavily. And there's, you know, um, issues. I think getting supplies, food, all those kind of things to people that people are living in the city. But as it you know as it remains right now, Ukrainian forces are holding out, and they continue to inflict loss on the Russian military. I you know, we've seen a number of UAV videos published with the Azov Battalion regiment showing um, Russian military losses, loss of T seventy two B three tanks, BMP threes, other kind of vehicles. So that fight continues. Not sure, not clear when that'll, when that'll end. Um, if Russia's going to be able to take that anytime soon, but clearly they're, they're seeing quite heavy resistance there. Um, in the northeast, most situation is is mostly the same. Kharkiv, Sumy, Chernihiv, all holding out. Um, Kharkiv, the bombardment, you know, continues. It's almost a nightly basis, seeing really heavy MRS fire, um, seeing aircraft, you know, aviation bombing, all those kind of things, you know, quite a common occurrence still. Um, It appeared there was a Russian aircraft shot down over Kharkiv today. Um, Russia's continued to lose aircraft, um, both helicopters and fixed wing. And, you know, we don't have a, 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 you know, a, a total picture of the, of, Russian aviation losses, but they've clearly taken some, you know, some not insignificant losses uh, and they continue to have issues there. And then around Kyiv, right, which is, you know, probably the the most important area um, Russian forces in the, in the European Bucha, Hostomo region, kind of in the same position. They've been still very heavy fighting there. Um, There there was a, a, uh, so Ukrainian forces have still had success holding them back there. It appears Russian forces have pushed out a little farther west, um, trying to, kind of, to, to move out west, more farther to the west to help encircle the city. But it, it, still in that area, Ukrainian forces are holding out and, and being quite successful from everything you can, can tell. Um, some of the small towns to the northwest of Kiev have really been devastated. Um, you know, A lot of destruction, a lot of towns have been you know, well, mostly wiped off uh, of the, the map at this point. Um, but ultimately, Ukrainian forces continue to hold there. And then to east, Russian forces might be the most significant advance of the last week. Russian forces have moved um, closer to the, to the eastern outskirts of Kyiv. Um, it looks like it's mostly 90th Tank Division, 41st Combined Arms Army from the Central Military District, um, you know, was coming from the northern part. And that's the same army that allegedly lost two generals uh, you know, in, the, in the first week, week two, two weeks of the conflict. Um, There's that really um, dramatic UAV footage posted, I think it was two or three days ago, from Bravari showing um, a Russian armored column, I think it was a 6th Tank Regiment, uh, getting struck by our, our Ukrainian artillery fire, Ukrainian, I think, tank fire, and uh, some, some questionable tactics at that point. There's also a, some, some footage of a very close-in ambush with anti tank systems in that, in that general area. So it, it's clear that Russia's trying to advance in, in that part as well. They're clearly trying to encircle Kyiv from both the west and the east, um, and yet Ukrainian forces are having success holding them back in both areas. And so it's still a bit of a question of when, when can Russian forces take the suburbs around Kyiv and try to encircle it. And, you know, the southern part is still open. So you can still, you can still Ukrainian forces can still resupply food, weapons, and ammunition, all things to Kiev um, for, for the time being. So ultimately, you know, it, it's not too much has happened, I think, the last week in terms of, of Russian advances. Clearly, the fact that they're able to push, you know, battalion, armored battalions, or, or you know, maybe a regiment reduced out to Brevardi means they can sustain that, they can push forces closer to, the, to this capital than they could before. But it's still a question of when can they, ha- can they take those areas um, some questionable tactics, the fact that you know that they're moving in, in pretty bunch up formation. And this is you know only about 20 kilometers from Kyiv, so you know clearly within the artillery range, clearly on a kind of avenue approach that'd be known to the Ukrainians, and, and some kind of again questionable tactics being being displayed. Um, and I think also it's still a question of you know, did Russia use the right units um, for the most strategic mission to take Kyiv. Because they, they deployed units from the Eastern Motor District, Central Motor District. Um, a lot of this we're seeing very old tanks like T-72As. Um, and, and some very old equipment. And it's a bit of a question of, was that the right move for the most strategic, important target to use, maybe not your best units? And I think that's something we'll you know, look at in the future. Anyways, so that, that's the overall kind of, kind of report of what's happening. Um, so not, not too much to ch- change the way of advance, but bombardment continues. Um, st- certainly devastating strikes continue. And then one thing we've seen more the last few days, we've seen increasing strikes in Western Ukraine. So there was the strikes that today in uh, the military facility near Lviv, um, there were, there have been airstrikes on airfields in Western Ukraine over the last couple of days as well. It's pretty clear that we're just trying to preempt any kind of additional support from NATO, um, whether those be, you know, MiG-29 fighters um, or other kinds of supplies going into Western Ukraine. I think they're trying to make it clear that no part of Ukraine is safe. And if you know, if NATO deploys forces anywhere or, or kind of arms supplies there, that Russia can still destroy those assets. And of course... A lot, a lot of this is coming from cruise missiles. It appeared um, a number of the missiles uh, fired in Western Ukraine were from uh, it, were a Shishikha bomber um, air launch cage, uh, one hundred one cruise missiles. And cool, even if you deploy fighters out there, you can't, you know, de- de- defeat all of them. So um, that's one thing that's been new. That's kind of a new development, that obviously trying to signal. And I think some of the probably continue in the future. Thanks, Rob. And,
0: you know, that was interesting that this week, in fact, in the last couple of days, we've had senior statements. From Kadyrov, from uh, Zolotov, the head of Rosguardia, the National Guard in Russia, saying that um, they wish the advance was was taking place a lot quicker than it is. So it seems like the Russians are getting frustrated that they're getting bonked down. But, you know, I want to get back to this tank amb- ambush uh, that you mentioned, Rob, uh, because that was a really stunning video that showed up. at at the beginning of the week of um, this uh, tank column from the sixth regiment trying to get into kiev and getting ambushed uh on the road uh in bravari and mike i want to go to you on this because we talked last week a lot about all the problems that the russians have had the morale issues the problems with the their assessments uh, of ukraine and and the concept of operations being bad and, and problems with logistics and everything else but I do wonder if there's more fundamental issues that we're not paying as much attention to. And I know you just posted a Twitter thread a few hours ago about how the Russians may not be 12 feet tall, but uh, they're not four feet tall either. And I want to challenge you on this. And, and I'll tell you, I, I was having a conversation with General Petraeus, uh, who, of course, ran the fir- uh, commanded the 101st Airborne during the invasion of Iraq. And when he was looking at that video, he was just shocked that you would have tanks being ambushed by artillery that way with no recon, no protection. Uh, And I was talking to another uh, Marine infantry officer who literally told me he had heart palpitations looking at that video because it just goes against the most basic things that you're trying to do in armor infantry, um, that you don't bunch up the tanks that close together, you don't put your lead command vehicle out front. Uh, He said, you know, it's, it's drilled into you in basic that... Uh, when you stop, you immediately get out, you establish a perimeter. They weren't doing any of that. And that's not planning. That's not logistics. That is some basic training that seems to be lacking, uh, in the Russian military. And I, I wonder if you had a comment on that. Are we seeing, uh, real major problems with some very basic tactics and training?
2: I think they have some challenges for sure. And fundamentals, but, uh, two points I want to make here, um, Maybe three. First, OK, there are a lot of anecdotes, right, that from which we see that they've not done nearly as well on aspects of how they execute missions, how they organize for them. We've also seen pretty significant adjustments within the first week we can have. Second, there are things that the Russian military does that are different from the United States. OK, I know that may be foreign sometimes to our culture uh, that actually people do certain things differently. For example, in Russian military commanders typically lead from the front. The unit goes as the commander. They have very small planning staffs, and that's why often uh, their commanders, including senior commanders, are likely to get killed on the battlefield. Their commanders are likely to go and recon and survey the battlefield in person, uh, much more so towards the front line as well. It's just a slightly different command culture and structure. Okay, that specific episode. Uh, Dmitry, I'd be very careful like generalizing from that specific episode. So that was a battalion tactical group that clearly had mustered and deployed along a large road. And they had a combined arms mix of forces with them. And their failure was that they had failed to do reconnaissance. And they did not suspect that they were within range of Ukraine artillery. And that's a mistake I've seen them make throughout in this, in this campaign so far in the last two weeks. Their reconnaissance has been pretty bad. Uh, early on, they weren't doing convoy escorts. They started to pick that up significantly. They were first operating in small detachments and then started to operate in much more defensible groups. But still they're they're being faced by a pretty smart Ukrainian resistance that's forcing them to fight and organize very differently than the way they typically train and fight right so i I made a post saying that Russian military may for local wars uh, uh, generate in battalion tactical groups, but in actuality, in this war, you see them using BTGs as a form of organization to sort of drive around and mobilize. And that's what they were probably trying to do to gather forces. But in general, they have only small engagements, sort of squad-sized fights. Their main enemy is a, a Ukrainian squad-sized ambush team with anti-tank weapons. They have very few sizable weapons. There's no battalion engagements, really, in this war, right? And I'm sure that's probably for the Russian military, really frustrating them, right? They, they can't meet an opponent in the field. They can't use their mass. They, uh, if they concentrate their fires, then, um, you know, they're, they're going to have a hard time actually hitting much of anything because the opponent isn't concentrated on the basics. I think the big issues is where I was surprised that they spent a lot on procurement modernization and they clearly skimped a lot more on maintenance and sustainment and on logistics, It's very much a mixed bag. It's actually a different war, depending on where you look, in the northeast and south. I probably have slight differences with Rob and his interpretation of the battle map in the last week. I don't think necessarily the war is going nearly... What's your view? Uh, Well, my view is the war is not quite going um, quite as well. I would say that uh, Russian forces are clearly fanning out to encircle Kiev, both in the west And in the east and cutting off major arteries Second, they are trying to cut down towards Izum from the northeast, which is you know southeast of Kharkiv, And they're trying to push up from Meditopol in the south, essentially to envelop the bulk of Ukrainian forces in the JFO, the joint force operation of Donbass. Right. And they are compressing them slowly. Those are pitched battles, but you can kind of get a gist. Of, of their plan and their vision. They are trying to proceed with a fairly large envelopment, and to me that, that situation looks a bit precarious. And in the west, they have already half-encircled Nikolayev and are trying to push west of it towards the death side. I don't think they necessarily have the forces for that push, but it, it is a significant development. They're clearly not going to fight for the city. They're going around to envelop it and they're already more than halfway around it. Um, and they're also trying to find another vector northeast sure. towards Crevy-Rig but maybe to actually cut some of the ground lines of communications west of the Nampa River. Uh, you know, in the south, they, of course, have rail access, and they can hub out of Khersona and Meadupol, so they're able to project power much faster uh, from there. In the northeast, their advance was, you know, very fitful, but very sizable, given they don't have uh, rail access for logistics and they have to truck a lot. So long story short is Russian forces are taking a lot of casualties in terms of manpower and material. And it's costing them, but they're actually advancing very differently in this past week. They're being more methodical. They're taking a lot more towns and clearing them, trying to secure the routes for their convoys, and they're not pushing it nearly as fast. They're not being reckless. Not trying to do thunder runs and some of the some of the wild things that we saw in the first two weeks of the war. So, long story short, yes, they have problems with basics and fundamentals. Uh, I raise big questions about, you know, which lessons are going to be generalizable from this and which ones are going to be context specific. There's a lot of aspects about this war where they're both things where I'm surprised and also things I see uh, the Russian military fighting in a way very different from the way it's set up in terms of, you know, the way train, fight concepts of operations and, and the initial strategy going into this conflict. Um, and I'm sure there's things that, you know, people in the U.S. military would look at and say, hey. I mean, this, this just looks terrible. US, U.S. forces wouldn't fight that way. That's fair. Um, you know, I, I have some thoughts on that. Let's put I'll, I'll this way: uh, I'll leave the thought at this, The only have I learned, obviously, quite a bit in the Russian military, and, and you could only see that from a military attempting something like this, which Russian forces haven't done in decades, certainly not since they attempted to reform Martin ISIS army. Um, I'm also learning a bit about my own defense uh, community's reactions to uh, you know what it might be like to fight uh, a near-peer adversary with some parity of capability, a lot of morale, and um, the the real ability to fight intelligently and inflict substantial casualties and and, uh, and and material losses. If that makes any sense, right? It does. It does. Let me quickly follow up on on something you just said,
0: uh, which is that there are. Uh, obviously having a lot of success in the South, much more than in the North. What do you explain that by? Is that intentional by Ukraine to just give up that area and focus on the North and protection of center of gravity, which is Kiev? Is that because of rail access?
2: Are there multiple reasons for for that success? It's multi-causal. Ukrainian forces were grossly outmatched in the South and had to retreat. Uh, Ukrainians made a choice strategically to defend certain parts of the country more than others. Uh, Russian military has much easier access in terms of logistics, availability and terrain. The forces I think they used from Southern Military District were better in some of the airborne units down there than up in the north. Rob touched on that. Uh, for example, if you look at the fighting around Hydgiv, where you saw pressure being applied by elements of the Sixth Army. And two hundred motor rifle brigade; those units are not really designed or optimized for any kind of serious attack. So, but I'm not surprised they actually hadn't done that well. So, there's a whole, a whole set of factors I would say for why they've, you know, you, you more have a tale of three different fronts and what's happening in this war: the the north, the the east, and and the south. Got it, Rob. What's
0: your take on the missile arsenal? They they've shot a lot of missiles. I think a few days ago, the U.S. estimated that over six seven hundred total have been shot. Uh, How many do you think are left? And there was a story by El Nakashima in the Washington Post earlier today that apparently in the last few weeks they've asked China for assistance. Do you think that they're trying to get some more munitions from China? Are they running out? Do you have any sense of that?
1: Uh, Yeah, so it's it's, it's interesting. I I didn't I don't think any of the articles specify what kind of weapons they're looking for from China. Um, For the most part, the Russian military and Chinese military don't operate the same weapon systems. So they have you know, they, they use some of the same Mi-8, Mi-17 helicopters, um, Su-35S fighters, but the, but there aren't that many systems that they, they share. Um, and, you know, Russia doesn't need any, you know, the S-400s, Su-35s, so it's not, not, not completely clear to me what they're looking for. In terms of munitions, you know, they, look, they fire a lot of precision-guided munitions. They've used a lot of the ballistic missiles, cruise missiles, um, and we keep seeing uh, convoys in Belarus of, of, of more... Iskander M, you know, 9M-723 ballistic missiles being moved. Clearly, they're, they're continuing to reload and continue to operation. Um, it, it's not clear to me how many they have. Um, they, they've clearly used a lot. We knew in the beginning they, they had much fewer than, say, what the U.S. or NATO has, and that was going to be a limitation. But, you know, they're, they're, they're trying to demonstrate that they can still hit targets in Western Ukraine, even if they can't fly over there, right? And so, it, you know, it seems pretty clear to me that Ukraine still has, is, has stronger air defenses, in the Western part of the country, that's probably why Russian, mil- you know, Russian Air Force is not flying over there that much. And when they're choosing instead to use, you know, Iskander M systems or, or Calibers or, or KH-101s. Um, so, you know, clearly they're trying to, to, to demonstrate that, um, continue that they can, that they, if they can continue to strike targets out there, even if, you know, we try and say there's a no-fly zone, it's like, okay, well, they can still fire cruise missiles. It doesn't really solve the situation completely. Um, but it, it is a question of, of when will they start running out of these munitions. um you know China doesn't have these right China doesn't have calibers they don't have these same kind of, uh, of, of systems they don't have these kind of rim so um, it's, it's not clear to me what, what China would provide in that regard or if it would be could they they have the caliber missiles right and they have
0: uh, the obviously the grad and the smersh rockets so, so could it be resupply of that
1: so, so it, they have some of the uh, uh, MLR systems but you know, Russia should have plenty of stockpiles of those kind of dumb munitions. So when we're talking about precision-guided munitions, there are very few that China has that I think that Russia is employing right now that they, 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 they need, I think. And maybe Mike has some other ideas. Um, we, we've seen more recently some, some other kind of precision mu- munitions being used. So we, we, the Russian MODs posted videos of uh, Krasnopoul laser-guided laser 152-millimeter artillery rounds being used, um, which they use heavily in Syria. Um, we saw, uh, the first photos of a coup uh, loading munition being used in, in Kyiv. Um, they, they've, they've tested loading munitions pretty heavily in Syria as well, but they don't have that many of them in service. Um, so, so they're trying to use those systems as well, but it, it's not, it, it's not going to be what they, they would need from China. Um, but again, maybe Mike knows better than this than I do. Mike, any thoughts as it drowns maybe? I,
2: mean, I don't like being in a speculation business, so, uh, Right now, there's not much to go on. I suspect if, if there's things they need, it's more technology components like chips, which, you know, actually the, be hard to get them as much from China, since we know that some of the main ones are made in Taiwan. But maybe they're looking for things they can backfill. This war is going to put Russia behind by several years, at least, of procurement. And maybe they're running running low on some burst basic stockpiles of munitions. Okay, makes sense.
0: Um, when, when Do you have any thoughts on the envelopment of forces in the Donbass? Do do they actually have enough forces to uh, to execute that mission? Uh, Ukrainians obviously have quite a few forces um, in that area. It's a huge area. Uh, do you think they're capable of it? That's to Mike.
2: No, uh, potentially, yeah. Look, one of the challenges is that we're dealing with a fog of war, we don't actually know the state of the Ukrainian forces. And it's very it's not that easy to tell how aspects of this fight are going. So um, whether or not they can develop them, they're certainly trying to apply the pressure and trying to push out from both the south and the northeast to make it a pocket or maybe a series of pockets. Uh, And and attrition takes a toll. right. Like Russian forces have lost a lot in, in manpower material. Ukrainian forces, at least from what one can tell, have lost less. But they've lost a significant percentage as a share of what they have available in total, if that makes sense. So they, those those losses count as well. Makes sense.
0: Um, back to the equipment. And, and Rob, maybe you can take this one. I, I did the math early in the week, and I think it still mostly holds that from all of the videos that people have aggregated of equipment destro- destruction and abandonment uh, by the Russian forces, It appears that over 60 percent was either abandoned or um, actually captured by the Ukrainian forces, which to me was just an incredibly high number. Obviously, we don't know what we don't know. And the Ukrainians may not be taking pictures of the totally destroyed equipment. But nevertheless, I just thought that it was a a remarkably interesting statistics. Do do you have any thoughts on how real real it is and what might explain it, Rob?
1: Sure. So, you know, it's obviously is recorded by the Oryx blog. one thing to keep in mind, right, is that it's the, the the observable things that we've seen lost between Russia and Ukraine. You can't really compare because we're going to see more evidence of Russian loss than we will of Ukrainian losses because it's more likely Ukrainian citizens will post it, it's more likely you know Ukrainian soldiers will post that stuff. And the Russian military is, is they're 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 only catching up now with trying to kind of get involved in the information environment stuff. They, they you know they were they were behind on that. The Russian MOD only set up a Telegram channel. On March fifth, right? So they weren't prepared for this, and, and they're only catching them now. So, so it's one thing to keep in mind that we're not getting the full full idea of, of the losses and, and what it means. Um, you know, I, I think we, we're seeing more abandoned equipment in the beginning. Um, th- there's still you know images being posted now, things that are abandoned, not always clear if this is you know new new equipment that's been lost or old uh, stuff so that's been lost. But I think w- one of the issues that that rush had was you know they, they went with very heavy units into Ukraine, and certainly. When you're going you're to fight with against armor or mechanized infantry, it makes sense to have tank battalions. It's really it's quite useful. But in a lot of, I think in a lot of cases, they went with a heavier force than what was required or useful for the situation. And so tanks require a lot, you know, a lot more fuel. They require a lot more uh, maintenance, spare parts, all those kind of things. The wheel vehicles, and so they're much more, uh, more logistics kind of heavy. Um, and they have much greater requirements. And so a lot of the you know the logistics problems we've had and seeing kind of vehicles that have been broken down. It's like well, it's mostly a lot of them are tracked vehicles, right? We're not seeing as many wheel vehicles get get lost or or, or um, abandoned, and it's not surprising that it'd be harder to kind of support logistically those kind of units. And so part of the issue is that when you're in areas of Ukraine where there isn't maybe um, heavy Ukrainian you know armor presence, well, it's it's not that useful to have tank units or really heavy units. It's more useful to have lighter units that are better for a you know uh, maybe kind of more kind of uncertainty environment than what they're actually facing i think that's one of the problems they've had is they went in with a very you know a force and we already noticed that the russian military has a lot more fires um you know to maneuver units than say nato militaries do and so part of the problem is the 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 force they invaded ukraine with was well uh designed to fight a conventional fight it's not very well designed to fight an unconventional fight in a lot of parts of ukraine that's what they're facing and that's what they're having a lot of problems and you know if you're one or two tanks or even it's a tank platoon driving around by yourself and you don't have infantry with you, you know, you're quite vulnerable depending on where you are. And you can see, you know, that the Ukrainian territorial defense units are having a lot of success going after those kind of vulnerabilities. It's clear they're focusing on, on you know, like fuel, fuel convoys, which are not prepared to, to fight or, or, you know, uh, handle kind of any, any kind of insurgency. And so having a lot of those issues, I think that's one of the problems that, that the the equipment and the type of forces that they invaded uh, Ukraine We're not necessarily perfectly designed for the the threat they're actually facing.
0: Certainly something that a lot of militaries tend to make mistakes about. Um, You know, there's a lot of discussion in the last week, week and a half about the potential for use of nuclear weapons by Russia. Um, A lot of serious people are bringing this up as a real possibility Uh, I'm not in that camp. I I don't think that Vladimir Putin would use nuclear weapons unless he believes uh, that Russia and his regime is threatened. Um, And it doesn't seem to me that uh, there's a need to use them uh, in Ukraine. Uh, Mike, do do you share my assessments of that, that that's just not
2: a realistic possibility? I mean, it depends on the conditions. So. If we localize the conversation to Ukraine, no, but it also depends what happens. So, for example, uh, I am worried about some of the trend lines and escalation dynamics between us and Russia at large. There's going to be Russian retaliation for our sanctions, and it will be asymmetric because we can't retaliate with the fact of sanctions of their own as much. And we don't know what road that's going to take us down on. But then there's more significant question. It also depends on what we do, because, you, you know, you can't sort of ask this question in a vacuum. Uh, in general yeah i think not i think the likelihood is low um i'm not so sure if the folks that are arguing for things like a no-fly zone actually succeed because i do see that as a sort of a de facto uh declaration of war then then we're in a very different conversation
0: uh, absolutely yes and i should have clarified that if there is a war between u.s and <laughs> russia or nato and russia then everything is potentially on the table. But aside from that, Vladimir Putin does not need nuclear weapons to win this conflict in Ukraine. Right.
2: No. And, and here's the truth the truth, at least about what I think I, I am skeptical that they can achieve their original political objectives in Ukraine. I think those are out the window. I think they they're revising their war aims and what victory actually means. I, I think at, at this at this point, they what they're going to achieve is a lot less, right? That's my view. And uh, they're not going to be able to achieve the original maximalist war aims of sort of regime change and installing a pro-Russian government in Ukraine and controlling the state that way. Yeah, we'll, we'll get back to the aims in a minute. But,
0: uh, Rob, uh, what are your thoughts on chemical and biological weapons? The U.S. is obviously getting very concerned because the Russians are making noise about these supposed biolabs, which are not really uh, biological weapons labs in Ukraine. They're they're former installations from the Soviet Union days. They were getting dismantled. And um, the fact that the Russian propaganda machine is talking about the Ukrainians using chemical and biological weapons is obviously of concern uh, to us here in the West that uh, the Russians would use it themselves. What's your view on that?
1: Sure. So, the, you know, the, the the Russian kind of propaganda lines about these uh, facilities in Ukraine or Georgia, they, they've mentioned for years, right? And, and they're not really, you know, based on any kind of serious information. It's, it's just a way of kind of, I think, deflecting. So it's not surprising they're mentioning those now. They're going to throw up basically anything they can propaganda wise to kind of justify what they're doing, which obviously, you know, they're, they're losing the information kind of side of this. And they, they know that um, in terms of using chemical biological weapons, I don't think it's likely Um and, you know, one thing to remember in Syria, so clearly the Assad regime used them uh, numerous times and, and Russia refused to kind of uh, acknowledge that. But the Russian would do a number of times would, would regularly, you know, put out kind of briefings saying we have information that, you know, the uh, Syrian rebel groups are going to use chemical weapons. And, and they do this all the time, right? You know, it it'd be multiple times a year. They put out these kind of notices and, and typically nothing would happen. So, I mean, it, I think part of it is just to, I think, just kind of push the, the same information line that they, they always push about that um and, and so i don't think that that's particularly likely but you know when we go back to to the nuclear weapons issue we were talking about before one of the big issues with this conflict is that clearly putin thought it was extremely important right and, and he knew there are going to be heavy costs maybe not as heavy as they are but he knew there was going to be significant costs to it so going into ukraine he uh it, it was a clearly something that he's demonstrated is very important to him he thinks it's a very you know strategically important mission For the Russian, you know, for Russia in general, Um, if he can't achieve his goals, right, and the U.S. overtly takes away that makes it, you know, impossible for him to to achieve his goals, like in the fly zone, then, you know, there there absolutely is an escalation risk that he might escalate in different ways. And we talk about nuclear weapons. I don't think it's that likely, but it's it's not something that is, you know, impossible at this point. And I think we also remember that right now, Russia's conventional military is is you know getting hit pretty hard. They're clearly using up a lot of the precision-guided missions they would use if they wanted to have a conventional conflict with NATO. And right now, you know, we, we, they already deployed what 75 percent of their uh, kind of permanent readiness ground force units into Ukraine. And we, and I guess the estimates is that they've lost 10 percent of that, whether equipment-wise, or casualties. They lost a significant portion of that. So right now, the Russian military, conventional military, is is struggling and, and hurting in a way they have not, uh, you know, faced in a long time. Right, and and even this, you look at casualties. They suffered more casualties in the first week than they probably did in Georgia and Ukraine in 2014, 2015, and Syria of the last seven, eight years combined, right? So, I mean, it, it is, it is a, a significant number. It's a significant effect. As Mike said, right, there, there are going to be significant equipment losses here. They're going to have to you know change up the, 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 uh, the next um, uh, guys, uh, you know, a, a procurement plan to kind of compensate for these losses. So we're looking at Russian military right now, the conventional military side, that is weaker than normal and that is, is more strained than normal. And as long as this war goes on, right, they're already very stretched then trying to control all these different areas and, and, and are struggling to deal with all these kind of unconventional tactics by Ukrainian forces in, in Kharkiv and Sumy and all these other areas where they're you know, attacking Russian supply lines. And so what that means is, right, Russia's in a very vulnerable position. And I think also from Putin's perspective, this is a very... Important mission for him. It's not necessarily going as well as he thinks it is. There's is an issue that if it were to fail, right, it would be a thing that could threaten his position at home. And so in terms of escalation risk, right, that's why it's a more dangerous situation than normal, because he can't rely on those kind of things he normally could. And the conventional power isn't nearly as strong right now. It's much more tapped out than normal. So all of those things make this a much more kind of you know, dangerous situation. And, and it also means that he's more likely to escalate if things are going poorly than if they're going well. And so the old, the, all that kind of contributes to why the situation is more dangerous than normal and probably more dangerous than any time in, in Moscow uh, NATO relations since maybe the early 80s. That's a great point. And, and, and by the way,
0: two things there, the people that are calling for the no-fly zone, as Mike mentioned – uh, are potentially uh, causing a massive escalation here that you know, if we were to implement that no-fly zone, we would end up in a war with Russia that, that could result in, in the use of nuclear weapons. But the other point is, that I think is also important to point out, is that people that think that Ukraine is just step one and that he's about to invade Poland or Romania or the Baltics, perhaps are not appreciating that with the Russian military struggling as much as they are right now in Ukraine. I don't think they're in a position to invade anyone else at the moment uh, and pick up any, any new fights and uh, would need uh, quite a bit of uh, uh, reinforcements to um, uh, to compensate for the losses that they've encountered. Um, all right, for those that are joining us, this is Dimitri Alperovitch, chairman of Silverado Policy Accelerator, and I'm with Mike Kaufman of the Center for Naval Analysis and Rob Lee of the Foreign Policy Research Institute. Let's talk a little bit about uh, effectiveness of units. Uh, Mike, what is your view with all the casualties that Rob was just talking about that they're incurring across the board, including very senior casualties? Do you think that most of the units that they are operating are still quite effective or are we starting to see real degradation uh, of those um, BTGs?
2: I think they've lost some BTGs and particularly the areas that they got badly mauled, like around Harkiv. Uh On the whole, though, know, given the way this actual war is being fought, not nearly as much. So, for example, if you have a BTG and it's a cohesive force and it's engaging other formations, uh, let's say, in the field and it takes substantial losses, right, it can really lose its cohesiveness and its ability to act. In this conflict, you know, a Russian BTG is basically driving around in company tactical groups or even smaller sections and engaging very small numbers of Ukrainian units. Like these fights are quite small. And so it's overall cohesiveness as a larger formation isn't as significant. And actually the size of the formation is very taxing for the commander to manage, right? Depending on how big the BTG is, they range in size. Uh, All those attachments can actually be very, very difficult for the commander to manage. Um, So my view of it is that, you know, somebody had earlier written, I saw online and said, Hey, if you take out something like X percentage of vehicles in the BTG it will not be effective in the loose cohesiveness. And I'd say, well, in the, in the war, if we were looking at BTGs being fielded uh, in larger formations against a, an opponent fighting the same way, yeah, sure, maybe. But in, in this fight, it's a very, very different story. Uh, as far as senior commanders being lost, yeah, it's really just actually not unusual for the Russian military. I mean, Russian military even lost lieutenant generals in Syria. Um, a major general, which is a one-star, sort of typically deputy CA commander or, or maybe army commander, or chief of staff going to the front line and um, trying to lead from the front, trying to figure out what's going on and, and getting killed and taking big risks. It's actually not that uncommon for their military. That, that aspect of just, I think, a big, big cultural difference. Huge one. Huge one.
0: Uh, Rob, there was a lot of brain cells being wasted over the last week and a half on this whole Polish MIG question. Will they or won't they supply MiG-29s to Ukraine? We talked on the last uh, uh, Twitter space on Sunday how air defense systems like the SA-6s or the Sa uh, S-300s that um, uh, some of the former Warsaw Pact members uh, like Bulgaria and Poland have would be much more useful. Uh, One of the things that that I I think was really underappreciated in that discussion is that those Polish MiGs, have been upgraded to NATO standards in the last 30 years, Um, NATO communications that obviously wouldn't talk to Ukrainian communication systems, avionics for sure have been upgraded, friend foe systems. It it wasn't even clear to me that the Ukrainians could even fly those planes without some level of training. Was that your view that that was just a
1: completely misguided
0: uh, conversation?
1: So... Yeah, I don't know the details on this. Um, I'm not. I'm not sure how easily you know Ukrainian pilot who's used to make 29 could fly Polish ones. I'm not sure what condition Polish 29s you know are in. Um, yeah, I think there are a lot of questions, a lot of unknowns here. I think it's also you know a question of was w- is, is is the limiting factor here the number of airframes for the Ukrainian air force because U.S. officials keep saying they have the majority of their fixed wing aviation, um, it, you know, is the majority serviceable are those all in in you know in working order um you know are they missing spare parts are they miss is it logistics issue is it a pilot's issue i don't know what the issue is right and there's you know, obviously another issue that you know russia has deployed uh air defense systems in all these areas and they, they obviously had some loss earlier and so the question of you know is does ukraine want to keep sending fighters into these um really kind of dangerous uh environments where you know, there's, a, there's, a, there's a good risk of them getting shut down I don't know. Right. And not to mention, you know, Russian 235s are operating out of Belarus. They're obviously trying to conduct a defensive counter air mission as well. So it's not clear to me what the limiting factor there is with the Air Force. I think in some ways, you know, if, if we want it, um, a more effective option might be TB2s, just because it appears we're still having an effect. Right. Still, obviously, can only make tentative conclusions. But obviously, if you send TB2s into a contested air environment, well, it's not, a, it's not as big of a deal if they get shot down, right? They're not that expensive. You're not losing pilots, and you can keep doing that, right? Um, so I think, you know, I think the question to me is, was, were MiG-29s the most important option? Were they really, you know, was it the airframes that was going to fix the situation? And are there better kind of ways, um, more cheap and, and, and cost-effective ways of improving Ukraine's ability to defend than MiG-29s? And I, I think they probably were, right? And I think probably um, air defense systems are probably a better option I think um, TB2s might be a better option. And I don't know what the relationship with, with Turkey is, with the rest of NATO on this, but obviously they, they delivered plenty of TB2s to Ukraine. So I think, I think there are other you know, questions to me, whether would MiG-29s really have changed the situation that much? And it's not clear to me that they, that, that would be the case. Yeah, and the TB2s, the Turkish drones, are, seem, seem to
0: have quite an effect and taking out quite a quite a bit of uh, Russian armor, um, as we're seeing from the videos. One quick follow up, Rob, uh, Belarus. Any more updates on their forces, their air force? Have you seen any evidence of their involvement in the
1: actual war? Uh, I haven't seen direct involvement. Um, obviously, you know Russia's a, a lot of the skander M launches are thinking coming from Belarus. Um, obviously, if they want to hit targets in in Western Ukraine, that they, they can do so from Belarus. They can't necessarily do that from from Russian territory itself. Um, I haven't seen as much uh, evidence of direct involvement. I think it's also a question of, you know, how how useful would would the Belarusian military be going to Ukraine? I'm not not sure they would be, they'd actually provide that much value. Um, You know, they they have some numbers, but they're not really well trained to deal with a conventional fight. And, you know, I'm not sure those guys are prepared to kind of go in and face a conventional slash unconventional fight in Ukraine. So it, it might be more of a kind of, you know, nuisance to send them into Ukraine than it is to keep them back in Belarus. And, you know, I think that might be kind of contributing fat to this. Mike, let's talk about
0: the aims of the operation and how they may have changed. One of the most interesting kind of rumors, but seems somewhat substantiated, that have come out in the last few days is the alleged attempt by the Russian authorities that have taken over Kherson, which is so far the largest city that they've taken over, of about 300,000 people. Uh, that apparently they want to do a th- referendum there to establish a Kherson National Republic, another one of those statelets like they did in Donetsk and Luhansk back in 2014. Uh, that was really fascinating, and I wonder if you have any thoughts on that. Do you think that they want to split up Ukraine into you know, a bunch of these statelets um, in the territories that they take and make sure that it can not function as a country?
2: I, I honestly know that. I suspect that that's just a pretty good pressure campaign they're pushing in order to show Zansky that they have a plan B, that they'd be willing to partition the country. That this is essentially a negotiation scheme. I don't think they want Curson's sort of people republic. Uh, of course, if, if they're not able to achieve their kind of broader war aims, yeah, I suspect uh, they might be willing to go through with a partition, but I highly doubt that's Russia's first choice. And I think they're organizing these things in order to apply pressure, right? To signal that this could be that this could be possible, in order to uh, coerce Zelensky into agreeing to terms. Right,
0: um, Rob, uh, have you changed your mind on their ability to take Kiev? Uh, you were pretty pessimistic on that last week. Um, what I'm hearing is that supplies in Kiev are not in great shape. Um, a lot of people have left, but there's still 2 million people left in Kiev. So if they actually manage to surround it and siege it, I'm not sure how many weeks uh, food and water supplies will actually last in the city. And you may see sort of a siege of Leningrad type of scenario there. Uh, what are your thoughts on their prospects in taking it?
1: Yeah, so I mean, if they're going to siege it, right? And if they're going to do to it what they're doing the Kharkiv, Right. I mean, we're getting an idea of what's happening in Kharkiv and, and how long that can kind of last, right, to hold out. Um, the limiting factor for Ukraine might be, as you said, supplies, right, food, water, you know, all those other kind of things. We know Russian forces have been hitting infrastructure targets, right, and, and it's not, not by surprise. Um, so, I mean, again, the, the, it's, it's really hard to predict this because it's, one, it's a little difficult to predict when they're going to be able to fully encircle the city, right? It's, it's taking them some time. Um, and Ukrainian forces are doing a good job of holding back Russian forces on the outskirts, now you know obviously we're, we're talking multiple Russian armies here, so they should have the ability to encircle the city at some point, right? Just might, might might take more time, and obviously you know all these bridges are getting blown up. That just means it takes more time for Russian forces to move around. Um, you know, delaying kind of in, in inevitability there. In terms of taking the city, it, it's it's really hard to predict. Um, ultimately, you know, as Mike was saying. I think what we're trying to do right now is they're trying to compel Zelensky to make concessions, right? And, and they're probably um, pulling back their kind of maximalist political goals from you know, regime change and installing someone who can kind of run Ukraine to something, you know, more limited but still significant, right? And we, and we still see, you know, quite strong demands coming from Russian officials, but at least they're, 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 they're more focused on acknowledging, um, recognizing Crimea and Donbass, and then, you know, saying we're not gonna join NATO, we're gonna demilitarize, things of that nature. Um, I'm not sure if all of those things will, will apply, but a lot of it depends on, you know, Russia Russia's still progressing, they're still taking territory, and it's a question of, you know, if they can fully besiege Kiev, right, they might kind of once again make those demands, say, all right, do these things, and this is how we, you know, we stop from leveling the city. If they decide to go in the city, right, it's gonna take time. And, you know, it, it's not clear to me how they will end up. Ultimately. Russia's already taking pretty heavy casualties, right? Every week this goes on, they're taking more casualties from ambushes and things behind the lines and, and Kharkiv and Sumy and all these other kind of areas. Um, and so, you know, you know, no matter what the, the front line tells you on these maps, well, still, Russians are, are still taking casualties behind those kind of lines, right? And that's why one of those maps are a bit, you know, um, maybe misleading depending on how you read them. So when we look at the, the timeline of a battle for Kiev, it's going to take weeks, right? And if they actually want to try to actually take the city, it's going to take a while. It's not going to be that fast. And even if they devastate it, even if they, they, you know, heavily employ fires like they have in Kharkiv, you know, we're still seeing people in Kharkiv hold out. And I, I have no doubt people in Kyiv will do the same thing. And it becomes a question of, you know, how how many casualties is is Russia willing to take to take Kyiv? And because ultimately it will be a very bloody affair for them. It's going to take time, and I'm not sure. I think it's it's a hard thing to kind of predict at this point. But it, it, at a minimum, it's going to take several weeks to do so several more weeks of this war means, you know, thousands of more Russian soldiers going to get killed, right? And that means sanctions back at, at, and, and all the other economic disruptions back in Russia are going to start having more an effect. And it's, you know, it, it, at a certain point, Russia's going to try and end this conflict, you know, when they can, because they know all these costs are increasing and it becomes a bigger problem over time. So it's, it's. I don't know, I, 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 I'm I, going to try and avoid making a prediction about how this will go. All, only thing we can say is, Ukrainians are proving that they're not, they're, they're not willing to give up without a fight. And if they fight street by street in Kyiv, it will take a lot of time to take it. And even if Russian forces take it, right, they'll then be facing uncertainty in these areas. And not to mention, if you level Kyiv, right, we're already seeing protests in Melitopol and Hursa and all these other cities. You know, those protests are only going to get worse, right? And it's only more likely you're going to see more kind of resistance, I think, in those areas that Russian forces will face. So it, it's not clear to me how it goes, but, you know, I think ultimately, if Russian forces level Kyiv, right, and they destroy it and they take it that way, it, it, it's kind of hard to see what political goal that achieves, right? And at a certain point, as Mike was saying, it probably makes more sense to say, okay, let's, let's try to negotiate from a, a position of strength. Let's try to not destroy the city. Let's try you know, extract some concessions. And then, you know, what's, what's in it on those kind of terms instead of, you know, going, you know, absolutely leveling the city and, and taking it that way.
0: Mike, what's your view on that? I mean, we're, we're getting a preview of what they're capable of in Mariupol, right, where they're decimating the city with artillery, they're uh, fully sieging it, uh, things are getting very dire in terms of food and water supplies in that city. I'm not sure how long they can truly hold out. Is, is that what, what's in store for Kiev, you think?
2: Potentially, but I actually have increasingly grown skeptical. Of, of the real prospects of a siege. I think that if anything, they'll probably try to encircle the city in the coming two weeks and then use that to pressure Zidansky for terms. I'm kind of skeptical that they have the forces to take it. I think I'm on the same page with Rob. That might be an optimistic assessment that could mean me just sort of advancing, you know, the desirable for the actual because I obviously don't want Kiev to, um, to be turned into a Grozny, 1999, 2000 type uh, campaign, but I suspect that given how this has gone, they or the Russia should be pretty pessimistic about their likelihood of taking the city. Um, well, I still see Zelensky as, as essentially the center of gravity, so maybe they figure they can compel him once they have the city largely cut off.
0: What, what, what's your take on Mike on the volunteers? They're asking for volunteers to join the fights including the middle east that seems like i don't know an act of desperation um and i'm not clear how they're going to control these people particularly if they don't have a lot of military training what's your take on that
2: i i honestly think that that's somebody's small silly initiative that's the kind of thing Prigozhin would do just to show that you know he's contributing to the regime's fight try to get a thousand syrians or so to go to go into this fight i don't think that that's a meaningful uh effort to raise troops one thing i'll say that that does worry me kind of about the potential of an urban battle in the, in the capital is it's not eastern military district forces that ever concern me about it's the large number of Chechens they have they're technically part of the national guard was Guardia, but are really could and they brought more and more reinforcements in and those are kind of their troops uh for an urban assault they're uh, their morale, their morale is rather high. That's the part that concerns me. Those are the people I suspect they'd ultimately send into the city if they were going to do it. That's a great point. And uh,
0: Kadyrov put out on his Telegram a few hours ago um, something implying that he is actually in Ukraine right now, near near Kiev, to be determined if that's true or not. But uh, that would be an interesting um, escalation if he is actually there leading those forces. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the coup prospects I, i've been on the record for a few weeks that you now have a non-zero chance of a coup taking place against putin from the sylvakey fa- faction from the military from the intel services but the one question that i don't think people have explored is let's assume it does happen and, and i want to make it clear that i i think it's still very unlikely very low probability it will take place but if it does take place mike What's your view on whoever replaces Putin actually ending this war quickly? I mean, you had, uh, you know, Brezhnev who launched the war in Afghanistan and it took only Gorbachev, you know, after Andropov and Chernenko to end it. And that was a number of years into his uh, into his uh, reign. So do you think that if we actually even get a regime change in Moscow, he would end this war?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. I personally suspect he would. I'm sure I think, sure I think in, the, in the Soviet war in Afghanistan, it was clear to the Soviet Union that they wanted to find, that they needed to start withdrawing or finding a way to draw down by 83. But, but you're right, it's Gorbachev that really organized it into a uh, a political effort to find a way out. Um, I I kind of think that Whoever it is, if there is a sort of palace coup, and I am definitely of the mind and habit on the record saying that for the first time, I do think this is the beginning of the end for that regime. I don't have this tremendous longevity. Again, that might be my optimism speaking. Uh, i part partly think that just because um, not just because the political instability caused by sanctions and and. The economic catastrophe that this ultimately is for Russia, but also because I think Putin's thrown under the bus important security elements of of his own regime, you know, the the FSB and the West Guardia and, and and the army to boot. But uh you know whether or not somebody's gonna wanna end the war, to me I think all the incentives are there. And one of the biggest reasons why is this is really Putin's war. I mean I almost feel looking at how it's gone down and now it's been prosecuted it's not even the Russian military's war as much they're fighting it but so many troops were sort of pushed into this I think under false pretenses and the entire concept of operation is sort of this, was more of a raid than a large scale military operation I think only Putin really believed that within three days he could somehow get troops into Kiev and, and get Zelensky to surrender, the entire thing was a botched uh, attempt at quick regime change that the Russian military tried to now cobble into a serious war effort that's still tremendously unimpressive anyway that's, those are my thoughts on the subject
0: great rob any thoughts on that the prospects for a coup in moscow and
1: whether it would end the war so it's hard days right i do think um you know Putin has set off a a a kind of by going this war right obviously you, you can decide when to start a war it's hard to decide how that war ends if will end on your terms, so on. Right? It's always a risky thing. And that's why I thought it was just a very, you know, strategically very, uh, you know, it was, it was a blunder. Um, I think one of the interesting things is, you know, I, I, I'm not gonna predict whether it will happen. I do think that, you know, obviously, Putin has has kind of prepared society in Russia to make it difficult to protest. He's obviously, you know, put many of the opposition figures either in jail or exile. He's made it difficult for Independent operate, independent media to operate, and especially now it's you know it's basically over. Um, and obviously, you know, it seems as though there are plenty of Russians who support this war. Pro- probably a majority. I don't know if we can get a, a good figure, but you know, it, it's clearly a sizable number. Um, one thing that's interesting, this is a bit of a tangent here, is that we talk about the role of Chechens. Th- you know, that they're clearly playing a large role. They've, they've clearly deployed a lot of Chechens to this, this uh, war, and more so than any other unit, they are posting a lot more videos on social media. like Kadir posting this. These guys are taking selfies all the time and, and they're making a big deal about this. It, it's, it's hard to say, you know, how significant a role they're playing, but they're, they're being deployed in larger numbers, right, than most of the kind of units are from, from other kind of regions. I think it's going to be a really interesting thing to see afterwards about the, the role it has on kind of the domestic situation in Russia, where it's always going to be a question, once Putin leaves, will Kadyrov be loyal to the next guy, right, or will he kind of assert more of his, his own position? And I think right now, if, if Chechens, you know, continue to take kind of heavy, heavy casualties, if they continue to be seen as taking a, a more key role in this war, I think there's every reason to suspect Kadyrov will say, I want more of a role, and especially whenever Putin goes, that I'm not going to be necessarily loyal to anyone who comes afterwards, and I might become more of a, you know, kind of problem for them. So I think that this is going to be another kind of issue in terms of domestic politics that's going to rear its head even more so. Depending on how this war goes, but either way, it's clear that Chechens are playing a key role, and I think that's going to affect, you know, the, the the power dynamic between Moscow and Grozny in the future. That's a fascinating point because Kadyrov
0: already is barely controllable and can do pretty much whatever he wants, even uh, in Moscow. Uh, and um, that's a great point that if Putin is gone, who will be able to actually keep this guy in line? What, what do you guys expect? Let's go to Mike first and then to Rob over the next week. Um, obviously, not a lot has changed uh, this week, although they have made some progress, as Mike pointed out. Uh, what, what do you expect to see happen uh, next week?
2: This coming week, Mike. I think my view is that uh, Russian forces will make some fitful progress and they'll probably pay a high price for it. Ukrainian forces will try to maintain position and counterattack where they can to prevent encirclements. Uh, you know, war is highly contingent. These things are going to play out in a cycle where Russian forces advance, then regroup, reorganize, resupply, advance some more. And we really don't know what's happening on the negotiation side as well, right? To what extent there's being real progress made between the two sides. So I'm, I'm afraid my answer is going to be somewhat disappointing. I, I think this war is going to go on. The only thing I will add is that I think about a week ago, I had suggested that just looking at the pace of operations and the attrition, the Russian forces like they're going to start facing uh, exhaustion and combat ineffectiveness in the coming weeks and they're going to need an operational pause. So either way, we may see a slowdown in operational tempo or a ceasefire at the very least where both sides get to rearm, resupply, and, and replenish uh, their attrition combat units. That's, that's the best I can offer. My general sense looking at this is, I think Ukraine can can definitely win this war uh, one way or another. They're fighting quite smartly. I think uh, the Russian ability to achieve their initial political aims has gone out the window now. I think if they substantially reduce their war aims, uh, they they might be able to to achieve something in this conflict. Uh, as for the rest, you know, I I sort of reserve judgment. I'll I'll go I'll just go back on what you asked me originally early on. Um, which is that you know how do we assess the Russian military based on us? And I'll say, I I'm gonna reserve judgment on until the war is over. There's a lot we still don't know. There's a lot we don't know between, you know, whether this you know, that military is rotten all the way from the feet, or if it's mostly the plan and lack of organization that drove uh, this debacle of intervention and tragic war. Anyway, I'll I'll leave it at that. Great,
0: and, and Rob, your your thoughts and. Do you think that they're actually going to start hitting convoys of supplies of weapons that are coming over from Poland? They're starting to make noise about uh, the fact that those convoys are fair targets. Uh, what else do you, do you expect in the, in the coming week?
1: Yeah, so I'm not sure. Um, you know, I, I think they, they could show a signal this week that even, you know, if you try and do a limited no zone in the Western part, that russia can hit those targets right and, you, and you, they're not going to be able to prevent that completely because there's no way of you know ensuring you're going to knock down all these cruise missiles if you launch you know eight or ten at a time um so i, I suspect they'll continue some strikes in western ukraine they're going to try and limit their use of ballistic missiles and cruise missiles in other parts of the country just because they're probably running low on them and they're probably instead just use multiple launch rocket systems or just you know uh bombing from aviation said um i think the big things this week you know, this is something we, we we kind of talked about beforehand. For the most part, of this war it, it, in rural areas, Russian forces over time, were going to defeat Ukrainian forces if they're out in the open, right? So, some some in a line of contact in the Donbas, some of that area, Ukrainian forces are still holding and, and doing quite a good job. As as Mike mentioned, right, there's, there is an increasing risk that they're going to be encircled um, um, by Russian forces there, and that that is an increase. But the big question right now is just looking at cities, right? It's always been about. If if Ukrainians are willing to fight for these cities and hold them, then that's going to make it very difficult for Russia to achieve its plans. And so, looking at the future, you know, when we look at coming for next week, the big questions are: Will Mariupol fall? If it doesn't fall, that you know, that's not a good sign for Russian forces for the for the kind of overall objectives of the campaign. Um, will Mykolaiv fall? Because if not, it's going to be hard to get out to go Odessa. And they you know they still haven't done that large amphibious assault. We, we you know people thought it was going to happen because it's clear that Ukraine still has you know, MRS systems, artillery, other things in, in the Odessa region. MLRS being multiple launch rocket systems. Correct, right. They still have this kind of artillery systems that get, that get threatened an amphibious assault. And so as long as Mikolayev holds out, it's going to be difficult to, for Russia to take Odessa. Um, if Kharkiv, Sumy, Chernihiv, all those cities, you know, continue to hold out, they, they likely will because it doesn't seem that the Russia is trying to really seize them, right? It, it just, it's, again, it tells you something about, you know, how Ukrainians will fight for Kiev, right? And everything we're seeing is that they will fight, They'll, um, they'll block by block, and it'll be very tough to take. And the last thing to look for is just that encirclement around Kiev, right? Can Ukraine continue to hold the, these the suburbs? Can they make it, you know, difficult and costly if Russia tries to, you know, create a, a, a tight encirclement of the city? And the longer it takes, right, the, the, the more likely Russia will try and end this war, you know, with a more compromised solution. And so all those are the things to kind of look for. And again, it is, is increasingly, it's a war for cities. And so what we've seen so far, is that there? There are a couple of large cities in the south that, that did fall to Russia, but none of them were places where Ukrainian forces decide we are going to fight to the you know last man here, right? We didn't see it in Kherson, we didn't see it in those cities. Well, um, in the cities where they are doing that, right, they're holding them still, and none of none of those ones have fallen. And so that's a, you know, a good indicator of, of how this campaign is going to continue. And ultimately, you know, a week from now, Russia probably needs to make some significant advances. They probably need to take Mariupol. If they do that, that frees up more forces that can, 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 can uh, move to try to take the rest of the Ukrainian forces in the eastern part of the country. Um, but if these cities continue to hold out, right, it becomes an issue because it becomes a, a problem for Russian supply lines. Because ultimately, you, you still have to be able to circle cities. That, that takes manpower. You have to be able to control supply lines. That takes manpower. And all that you know, pulls away from the actual objective of taking Kiev or surrounding it properly. So those are the things to look for, I think. All right. A war for cities. Well, I'm not sobering,
0: but I think nevertheless optimistic projection from both Mike and Rob. That's a wrap for us. Thank you so much for attending our Twitter space. Thank you, Mike and Rob, for sharing your thoughts with us. We had over a quarter million people listening last time, so I know there's a lot of interest. So we might continue doing these talks if the interest persists. And have a good night, everyone. Thank you.